Pete Yost here for the Unbuild It podcast with a word about our sponsor, Huber Engineered Woods. There are really three reasons why I think Huber Engineered Woods stands out, and it's a big part of why they're a sponsor of our Unbuild It podcast. First, they develop systems of products. The products are compatible and integrated. Makes our jobs a lot more easy in the field and when specifying. Second is superior tech support. There are really good website resources that they have developed for the application of their products, but they also have an outstanding uh, 800-numbered tech team that really knows their stuff. And the last is a really active technical research and development team with whom I've done a lot of work over the years, and I have a lot of faith in the information I get from them when I have questions about product performance. So that's it. That's our high-performance sponsor. Now on to the podcast. Welcome to the Unbuilded Podcast. I'm your host this week, Pete Yost. I'm here with my all-time buddies, Steve Basic, the architect, hello. and handsome Jake, the builder. Hello, hello. <laughs> and so we're doing this series on framing. We started with the floor, we moved up to the walls, and now we're going to work on the roof. So I think the underlying question is, what's all about with roofs, right? That's our underlying question. So when Steve, when you go to lay out a roof design, what rises to the top? Oh, sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I tell people they don't believe me. Let me let me tell you what the first thing I think when Why I get a set of plans. Why don't you tell me the first thing I think? I can't wait. The first thing I think. Where's you. water going to go? Where's the water going to go? Nice. That's not nice. Is that the way that you look at no, a roof definitely design? Definitely not. Definitely okay, not. then what is your criteria? Because I get to, I get to the point where I know where water is going. I don't have to ask that question. Well, Ooh. okay, I'm going to push on this one because the very first thing that I look at in a plan set is the roof plan. Because then I know how bulk water is being managed up at that line, and I really? know that you. That's so not true. We're in a. It's really not true because the first thing you look at is the title sheet because you need to find out where the roof plan is. No, Pete's like no, me. I, he just flips, just flips until through. he finds it. That's what I do every single time. See, your problem is you think much more highly of us than we deserve. Uh, no, his problem is he's an architect. He thinks people read the freaking title sheet. Quit making a title sheet. Nobody's looking at that first page. You will never get another title sheet on a set of drawings. One of the so people are going to say, where's the residence? I'm going to say, I don't know, Pete. Uh, Jake said no title sheets. One of the very first things I learned from you was... If you're going to simplify anything, simplify the roof. Simplify. And not a lot of many, many, many of your buildings have incredibly simple roof lines. Yes, because why complicate things? If you want it to be around a while, then keep it simple. Where does the water go? All those questions need to be answered, certainly. It's one of the more dangerous things is to start pushing water left and right over your head. And you have that great slide where you show how simple the roof plan is on your current home. And then, you know, look what people have done to it over the years. And remember that series you did where you, you started off with a real simple Cape design. And then over on the right, it's just it's like got four every, all hell's and broken, two, broken. three L's. And, but that's what happens. Which is actually a really good point because water management 150 years ago, it was the same type of water hitting a building in the same way. Right. And you generally didn't have major roof problems where, Valleys led, led to hidden structures, to ponding, where we had to have flat roofing and things. But if you look at a historical house, 
for the most part, we kind of all agree that things were pretty mm-hmm. and they were simple. And yet, for some reason, for your house today to be architecturally interesting and significant, it must be McMansion roofed out the wazoo. And now clients well, tend to want to provide upward pressure in areas of higher risk. Mm. Right? Like, oh, can we add three dormers there? Can we put them nice and tight together and kind of? So, better places to get the geometrical complexity that our eyes want than roofs, right? Generally? Yeah, there's there's a lot of ways to get it, certainly. I mean, roofs do play a role, especially if you're doing, you know, taller pitched roofs, because then you potentially have a whole lot of roof that. If, if there's a way to break down the scale, maybe you pop through it. Maybe you do do a dormer here or a dormer there. Um, but it can certainly, uh, you know, when you drive around and look at houses, you can s- certainly see uh, roofs run amok. I know you guys have heard this before, but the house that we live in is a four-gabled gambrel. Yeah, I think I've heard that once or twice. And I generally, when I'm teaching a bunch of builders, I'll say, okay, how many of you have done framing and, you know, most of the hands go up and you say, how many of you have framed a four gable gambrel? Well, and almost never does anybody. It sounds a lot more complicated, complicated than it is because the reality is, is it's a pretty simple roof. It's it's just wicked hard to frame because you have, you don't start with a reference (coughs) point, right? You've got a, there's nothing you can start with in terms of the ridge because there's four gables and they're all about the same size. You know, there's there's nothing no, to start if I was off. To build, if I was to build that now, you would build you would build the wall, hold it in two feet. You'd put in the long like twenty and twelve rafter, right? And then you would build that wall as the L, so you'd have four L's. That's way more complicated than just building a an A frame roof, right? Well, it's more complicated than building an A frame roof, but it's a lot less complicated than building like a double L roof with a couple bump outs and five dormers is my point. Yeah. Because well, your roof, I'm only cutting, your roof has two rafters in it. Four. One on two two on each side. Because I got a pitch no, no, no. change. The pattern is two rafters. Right. I'm not you worried about the pattern. I'm worried about getting them together at the roof. No, no, I get that. But all I'm four saying from a complication up. standpoint, I only have to figure out two rafters. Well, let me explain to you that the people who did the framing in our house were the masons who did this kick-ass job on the foundation in the first floor, which is split-face architectural block. When they got up and tried to frame a four-gabled gambrel as masons, I paid for that through the nose in terms terms of how just incredibly complicated the framing was up at the top. What year was your house built? 1907. I mean, gambrels are, are... tough roofs even if you build them today because they're they're one of these uh roofs that really put you in a quandary of am i inside or outside kind of yeah yeah that's very true because they they have that inner wall that needs to carry the the steep pitched section and so now you're displacing your air barrier most likely yeah to the inside face and it's a question of like what do i do from here yeah yeah it doesn't Um, help that they're ugly too What's funny oh. is that I, I had an architect who worked with me at the NHB Research Center, and he and his wife, who was an architect, bought a house in Baltimore. It was a four-gable gambrel with a masonry base. And I said, that is the ugliest building I've ever seen. I would never buy a house like that. <laughs> and I called him when we bought the house in Vermont. I said, hey, Eric, guess what house I bought? He said, you bought a stone or a masonry house, four-gable gambrel? And I said, 
It's hard to get the massing right. It just looks weird. I also don't like it when shingles feel like they're on the wall. Mm. And that's the way Gambrel has always felt for me. There are, when they're done right. So it, here's a. Welcome it, to Gambrel talk with. I guess well, so, yeah. Sorry. When they're done right, I think they look very elegant. Hmm. But I would say, I've out of all the Gambrels I've ever seen, probably about 25% of them were done. We're done proportionally, proportionally correct, right. Yeah, with the right pitches for the right spans, right dormer, right window selection, all of that. Where they just you looked at it and go, yeah, you know, that yeah. does look. I know really exactly nice. what you're saying. And then there's some that you look at and go, "What the hell were you thinking? What yeah. about you missed the boat on that one?" What about the Mansard roof then? Mansard, Mansard, mm-hmm. Mansard. Well, then I've been saying it wrong. Mansard. I just learned that in real time. M a n s a r d, Mansard. Second yeah, those are. So, how does it differ from the Georgian? Is the Georgian the, sort of the, a type of mansard? Well, roof? Georgian is more of a house style, mm. as opposed to just as a roof. opposed to a roof. Um, but the, the Second Empire roof is, or Second Empire style, pretty much has the mansard roof mm-hmm. to it. Like you live in the roofs. Yuck, um, yuck. In New England, you see them a lot. Um, Especially like coastal towns, like yeah. ships, captains, and stuff like that. Old captains; those were the kind of houses of prominence because they had a third floor. It's like, ooh, we have a third floor on our house. It's tucked up under the roof. the uh, The problem is, is the mansard is really it's a it's a real squatty gambrel right? with a turnout at the end. Yeah, right? so it's like you still have that pretty steep. Um, lower pitch roof it's right. just the upper pitch roof went from a maybe a five and 12 to a one and 12 mm-hmm. or something like, like that a little so cap. it got really flat yeah. down um, all right let's find our way back on track but so roof framing um you know when it when it comes to roof framing it's interesting because i think there were pretty much two predominant right you either did a cut roof which guys would call it or a stick roof um, which is, you know, two by tens, two by twelves, um, or in some locations, two by eights, two by sixes, depending on where you go, um, or a trust roof. Mm-hmm. And lately you're starting to see again with, you know, people's desire to have these big open span type spaces, you're starting to see eye joists come into play as roof rafters, mm-hmm. um, but remember, we just recently, we were with a gentleman, we gave a talk, and he was out in Colorado saying that they won't, he doesn't like to use eye joists because they they, uh, they get moldy at the top. Uh, he was hmm. finding mold and um, rot issues at the top of the eye joist from bad ventilation and hmm. Um, the OSB. And the bad ventilation specific to the yeah, type or, of framing? No, it was, a, it was a hot roof using it, I believe. But moisture huh. was accumulating at the top cord of the eye joist and pretty much rotting it out. Because his OSB framing member is more OSB susceptible than dimensional more, lumber. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, Which, in reality, has nothing to do with the framing materials. It has to do with the assembly. It probably has more right. to do with the assembly than it does the framing materials and water management and vapor management and such. Um, but I'm doing a house right now where predominant roof structure is going to be a parallel cord truss. So it's the eye joist, but it's basically an open web truss. We're just going to get them made as roof rafters. Hmm. Um, so, which is 
pretty interesting because it's these this house here is probably gonna we have some spans where the trusses are probably running <coughs> about twenty or the members are running about twenty six twenty eight feet so they're gonna be like eighteen inches deep hmm. um, parallel core trusses so that should make for a pretty interesting frame. Do we, does anybody have a sense of when we could when we could have switched from, you know, mechanical fastening at the eave instead of these wicked big bird mouths? Bird mouths always seem to me to be sort of a strange creature to take a deep member and cut it down and then toenail it into the assembly. Well, you're creating a bearing point though, too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason for it is the. But but when when did it make sense or did it ever make sense to switch? And just have that bearing point be a mechanical fastener as opposed to a chunk of wood. Have you ever done a roof where it was solid sawn and there was nothing cut out for the eave junction? No, because no, then you'd have to well, you'd have to cut the go to like a triple top plate, and it would have to be a low enough pitch to gain the slope all in the single member, right? So that if you did. It's probably in the order of like a four or a five and twelve. If you go taller than that, now you're chamfering two plates instead of just one because you only have that inch and a half to deal with. Because um, you have to put some kind of wedge plate in there. Got it. If you yeah. used it um, without the bird's mouth, so yeah, the bird's mouth doesn't necessarily bother me. Um, that's actually quite easy detail. Hmm. Um, trying to think. Uh, you know, there, there's the advanced framing that, you know, it's it's kind of like floor framing. You know, roof trusses, I'm very comfortable 24 inches on center, like parallel cord trusses, 24 inches on center. But doing uh, regular stick framing, we us usually keep that to 16 inches on center. And that's a... Why? Um, just because of the spans for the most part and span rating. And if you go a little wider, you're probably going to go to want to go to a thicker deck, a thicker deck is a heavier deck so things like that um the other thing to consider you know as we forge forward that a lot of people don't is the uh, weight load of uh pv arrays hmm. and you know planning for that so that making a home zero energy ready is also understanding that you need to design your roof system to be able to take that load mm -hmm. in the future in the city limits of Columbia, you also have to have 600 square feet. I think it's 600. I might be wrong. It might be less than that of uninterrupted south-facing roof uh, for solar-ready requirements, which we had a home designed in 2017, maybe, right after this came into effect, that doesn't you have a south-facing south roof at all. And we went to the city and we said, hey, we don't. What are we supposed to do here? The code says that we have to have six. And he said, no, no, no. It says if you have south-facing roof. Oh. It has. And I was like, that is the dumbest thing in the history of the world. So all you have to do is so just make it north-facing, so, right. and then you don't have to so worry about it. So if I put a bathroom on that one side with a roof faces <laughs> south, it's got to have a 600-square-foot roof on it. Yeah. Hmm. It's one of those poorly thought out. Yeah. If you accommodate solar, you have to accommodate solar. Yeah. I like exactly. That. I like that. So let's let's go back to trusses for a minute, and let's just talk about... What are the downsides to working with trusses? Um, you got to order them. 
you got to order them. So there's a planning they're and potentially of, a material delay. very fixed dimension, right? So that your walls and everything have to be. But, you know, most of the time you, you have an understanding of what your walls are going to be when the floor deck is down. So you can kind of set your plates and then you can have the guys come and measure and they can yep. be building the trusses while you're framing the walls. Mm-hmm. We so, have truss uplift. We have truss uplift to deal with. Um, and if you don't know what truss uplift is, it's exactly what it sounds like. The bowing of the framing members upward or downward, the, the, the uplift caused by wind or whatever. And if you talk to your truss manufacturer and you say, well, what causes this? You know what they'll say? Well, we don't know. It just does it sometimes. Really? And it's like, you bastards. I mean, truss Why? uplift is the bottom cord, right? And in, in its movement responding to the load that changes on the roof. But they give you the, yeah, sometimes it just happens. Because it seems to me that if you know that you're going to get increased load with, I guess, wind snow or wind. snow, you're going to yeah. flex the triangle and the bottom cords are going to move. Yeah. Um, which Wait, hold on. Which tells me that the software parameters that they set for building their dresses are let's make them so that they barely pass. And hmm. when we have an extraordinary event that causes this, we'll go, eh, we don't know why it did it. Because <laughs> I'm certain that they could build them a little bit stronger and lessen the likelihood of it happening. I don't know if you can, I mean, we were working on a roof that was, there was a 58 foot span. And I think Dang. it was a 5 and 12 because we broke them into two pieces. So split down the ridge so that they could be road transported because they were 14 feet tall. And uh, one of the first things I did was go up, into the attic space, which because it was a flat roof being converted to a pitch roof, and I started to bind the bottom cords so that we could more easily, you know, put down plywood and walk on those. And they happened to have a defective truss they caught in, you know, in the quality process. So an engineer came out to the roof to look at the, the defective truss. He goes, "Who the hell pinned all these bottom cords down to the existing roof?" And I said, "I did that to stabilize them." He goes. You don't understand how trusses work. If you bind that bottom cord, we're, you're going to crack these trusses. I was like, holy crap. I better figure out how these trusses work. Because then it can't do its it little needs to lift, move. Its it lift needs, thing in the Yeah. Middle. Yeah. And if you bind it, you know, that you're not relieving you're the stress. You're going to split the wood or you're going to split the, the metal. You're going to split the bottom cord. Yep. Or pull out a plate or something. So that was a little scary. So you, also I'm, I'm complaining about it and I've had it happen once in my entire career. But you had what happened? Truss uplift that yeah. caused yeah, we had dam- one, that caused damage. Yeah, oh. we had one house. I I mean, with Palo Duro Autistic Homes, I probably did let's say six hundred. Um, I would say five thousand homes with them, mm-hmm. and we had one noted problem of truss uplift. Hmm. So, so I think I, I like I understand that. When you said they don't know how why trufflets happen, you're talking about excessive truff, uh, yeah. up, uplift. I'm talking about you have to allow for the fact that it's going to reasonably move. Now yeah. I understand. I thought it was due about. to the, the upper cord was cold and dry. The bottom cord was warm and wet. And so the expansion and contraction of the, uh, the expansion of the bottom cord, the expansion of the top cord, or the bottom cord, contraction of the top cords made the trusses move so that there was upward bowing Interesting. in the uh, lower cord. Because the engineer that came to the site said, he said, especially trusses this big, they move a lot 
with snow load. In fact, we had a, there was a dry cleaning business and we had a plumbing, plumbing stack that went through. And he said, uh, you better allow for like four or five inches of movement of that top Yeah, it ain't cord. moving that much. No? no in a 58-foot no span? No, there's no way it's moving that much. Not four yeah. or five inches. Two um, inches? Two inches is probably a push. Yeah. Anyway, I'd say maybe inch a half and three quarter? inch. Or uh, plenty of movement. Half inch or so maybe. <laughs> um, but when you're talking about restrictions, I remember Paladuro, what, um, one of our uh, constraints, if you were, were – that at a 5 and 12, we couldn't make trusses any wider than 55 feet because then we had to get special permit to haul them down yep. the road. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. That. And they're not yeah. going to – or we'd have to break them into two, and they didn't really like – Yeah. And we didn't it, – it's interesting that work. you broke yours vertically because when we did have to break them, we would break it horizontally and we'd get like a small crown piece. Really? Yeah. That's huh. the way we've done it. So yeah, the bottom they were, they were you wicked get a funky hard looking floor trapezoidal. Truss. They were they'd have a trapezoidal bottom piece and then a small little gable truss that's yeah. set up on top. They were wicked hard to set, that's yeah. for sure. But but uh yeah, but and the other thing with trusses is you do pretty much forfeit the attic space. I mean you, you can you order box trusses. trusses, you can get attic trusses and you can get some of that space recovered. But the one time I remember a project, I think it was a Building America project where they we had the box trusses. Boy, it's really tough to get the continuity of the air barrier, you know, translated across those. Those it, it was hard to get that airtight. It is, but I, you know, the way I would do it if I'm going to go up there, I would sheathe the face of the attic truss and then frame a wall in front of it. Oh, yeah. Why fight it? Why fight it? Exactly. That is really clever. I would never have thought about yeah, that, but the times that we've seems done so it, we obvious. Finished it, we would just do that and then frame a two by four wall, stand it up in front of it. Um, Man, note to self. Cavity. Yeah. So then the other opportunity is uh, something I saw Randy Williams do, which we had on the podcast recently. Uh, they framed a little plenum, or they had the trusses ordered with a little. I have a passive house that we're doing that on okay, right now. A little plenum in the bottom of the truss so that they yep. had an HVAC chase oh, underneath the truss Ours is going to be truss more. Ours is like, it's like kind of So the bottom cord just has a little jog yeah. up. So it's sort of the opposite of the box where you're making mm-hmm. into your box. This is, yeah. That way they the could Ours they could like have a flat ceiling in the end. 10 feet wide, I believe. Um, yeah. And it's every truss across the. Which is going to be really hard to do stick framing. Oh, I mean, yeah. That would it's be. It's a. Then you're trying to do a, a, a what is the a tray ceiling down a whole hallway or you know down I mean, the middle of the house. That's essentially what you're doing. Yeah, because then you can sheathe it. But that's more of a pain in the butt. And then you just put in some two by four <clears throat> ceiling joists. Yeah. After the ductwork and stuff goes, and um, that works. But let's talk. You, you, those were we were talking about the cons of trusses. Let's talk about some of the pros of trusses. Span. One, yeah, span is easy because you can go wall to wall and. Go 50 feet. Speed. Um, speed, but that's probably arguable against some good framers in a simple house. Sure. That's a hard one. Simple to simple, at least. Because that's there's building perspective in that one, right? Oh, no, I can cut a roof just as fast yeah. as... Yeah, no, well, then I have to pay for a crane. Yeah, and I got to pay or for Or I have to have a lull on site. Um, the other nice thing about trusses is, is if you're building energy-efficient houses, you can get that energy heal. So right. Yeah, you can, you can get, get the heel height, 10, whatever you call 10, out. 12 inches, whatever it is. Um, so there's that benefit. Um, so if somebody is doing a roof truss for a cathedral ceiling, or even, I guess, for a flat ceiling, 
Do you recommend that the truss not include an overhang so you can wrap the, you know, the, the air, uh, air con- continuity layer of the roof plane down with the... No, because most of the time, I, for me personally, I bring the air barrier in over the top plate. And bringing into so the then house. it's the bottom oh, side. That's right. Of yeah, that's your truss. detail. Does it? So you're not worried about bringing that across. But what we do do is a lot of times. Said like, do do. You can get you can get the trusses made so that if you had a flat um, soffit boxed eave, they can make that up in the factory. Say that again. A flat box. flat soffit boxed eave. Yep. Right. Okay. If you're boxing out the eave to a flat soffit. Yep. yep. Um, but we would tend tend to. Or I I tend to like getting the upper cords maybe about two or four inches longer than what's needed because that way there you can snap a line and then just cut them after they're set and you get a nice straight fit. And you can still get the the depth of soffit and overhang that you were shooting for rather than ordering them the size you want and then having to cut three quarters off of end one end. Because because they don't line up or whatever. Um, And then also with the bottom of the soffit, as much as you would like to believe that because they're factory built, their tolerances are very tight, yeah. it's a challenge. So we would rather just we we would get the trusses, we cut them back to length. If we the, we put on a rough uh, fascia, so it's either a two by four or a two by six. It depends on what depth our fascia is, and then we'll bring a block back to box out the eave and give a flat soffit. If we mm-hmm. wanted to do that detail, and we do that on site because that's stuff that we can level and all. What other what other pros do we have? Um, not that we talked about ease. Um, there was a production speed. builder down in Mid Atlantic, uh, just outside of Baltimore. Uh, they would build their trust roofs on the ground, sheet them, and sheet them. And, and so it was uh, a huge liability reduction because they were essentially yep. working yep. on the roof. There's a grade, bunch of and then a cra- that, they, they had a crane full time that was on the site. It just went down, and one day Which, it would pick up one roof. That one you guy could, in the Midwest there, he does that all the time, and then lifts it up with his lull and drops the front Mark? entry. And, yeah, uh, Hendrickson? No, no, Mark Erickson. He, he's done that too, but the, it's a Maca Thomas or whatever his name okay. was. Um, but. At that point, you could shingle it. Well, no, they too, they you know. clad it. Yeah, Every, which it, then it you're just working, makes it heavier. But then you're working whatever the distance is from the ridge to to eave off the ground, rather than ridge plus the entire building right. off the ground. Right. I'll never forget. It, we, this was God, one that of take, my. That takes some effort, though. That that scare me. I'd have a hard time with that the first time. It's pretty wild to watch because the crane is if you're cladding it now you you know you, I don't know maybe you double the weight of the of the roof yeah. by cladding it. So this is a pretty cool story, and I was this was probably I don't know maybe the second job I ever did. This was many many moons ago, and I I didn't know enough to appreciate what he had done, but it was a hipped hipped roof house. And we were putting in, and it had a one story on the side, and we were building that up to a second story. And so the framer, he framed the walls, and then I was like, Well, aren't you gonna do the roof? He goes, No, not yet. And he went up there and they sawzalled all of the uh hips on on the hip portion of the roof, all the way back to where the common rafter started. 
they sawzalled it, and then they cut the sheathing. And I was like, what are you doing? He goes, oh, just watch. And so they did all of that, and then they went inside, and they took that section of hip roof and slid it down 14 feet. <laughs> and then he filled in the with, more commons. with more commons. Way to avoid like, cutting the it's complicated like, why He's like, why tear apart that whole hip roof and then have to reframe it? I'll just slide it down the top plate. Yeah. Wow. That's, you can keep it from spreading and getting wonky. Why not? Yeah. And then you just filled so, it in with common rafters. And, so did he do that for the whole? So you had to push down the whole yeah. hip? How hard was that to do? It I mean, wasn't. I mean, you had a handful of guys. They moved it right I down. I would have thought, that's really cool. Walked it down. And I mean, he cut back some of the sheathing so you could tie it in and lap it and all of that stuff. But hmm. he, he said the most complicated part is cutting that's, all the jacks and yeah. all of that stuff. So yeah, if they did a good job, why not to do keep it? it. But, um, that's very clever. But, you know, I, I always think to myself, like, kudos to some of these framers that you watch. Um, you know, the the Chevcons of the world and Ericsson and, and these guys. Because you see some of these roofs go up and it's like you don't appreciate it until it's done. Mm-hmm. And you see the roof and go, holy crap, that was a lot of figuring out. And I don't care how good of a set of plans you have. Yeah. There's, there's math and figuring out that those guys are doing that – as an architect, you have no idea what's going through their and, head. And what's funny, you know, as a remodeler, having done a lot of different roofs, you know, we didn't do enough of hip and valleys that we couldn't, that we could just crank them out. So we'd see guys that just framed, particularly roofs, and you'd think, man, those guys are, but they're doing it all the time. Oh, That's these guys are like beveling the top of the LVLs in the valley. So like the sheathing goes Comes right, right over. into, and it's, yeah. It's almost like cabinetry. That might be a little much. That might not be needed. No. Those shingles are going to give it a no. They are a but dished effect anyway. Yeah, well, I applaud the efforts. Cedar but shingles and copper flashing in those valleys of that house. So, mm-hmm. um, but so that gets us to what are the pros of stick framing? Number one is uh, complexity. Yeah, if it's a simple roof, it's very easy to adjust and run with. You develop the pattern, and you have. A good guy down there cutting those patterns and tossing them up and guys nailing them off. It is a pretty simple. You get a uh, somewhat usable attic or third floor out of it or second floor, depending if it's a one-story ranch. Um, Time-wise, there's, uh, and I think his, I apologize, I think his Instagram is Roof Slayer. He cuts the entire roof package in a, in a factory or in a, in a mm-hmm. barn, bundles it together, hauls it out to the job, and they put it up. So there's no cutting. Yeah, on Erickson used to do that because they know that makes what a lot it of is. sense. You would just see the, the the wood just stacked out in the on the job site, and it's like, yeah, I cut the roof yesterday, and it's just like the whole roof is just stacked there. Yeah, the but math get, doesn't lie. No, it's like once you get it figured out, you just need to understand what that kind of <clears> stepping <throat> increment is, and then you just cut it. Which so when you do it, sorry to go back to trust in terms of a disadvantage, but when we did that roof that had the, you know, 58 foot run and 14 feet high, we had to build a whole rack system from ground level to hold the trusses vertical on the starting gable end. Because until you get enough of the roof up, if the wind comes along, there are plenty of places where it just has had collapsed. It, it took us a full day to build the rig just to take the, to set the first truss. Yeah, they make spacers now that are like you can nail it to truss to truss. And awesome framers, Tom from Oregon, 
He's so, always, so there's a technique, so you don't have to Yeah, it's worry. like a plastic bar. You can buy a box of them, put it down, and you just nail it, and it locks in the trusses together. So the minute you put two up, you can lock them together so they work in unison. Huh. So they're like these little strut systems. Interesting. To uh, interlace the trusses. So you're X-bracing truss one and two, and then everything So you already else. have what you need with the first yeah, two. Yeah, they all lean on that yeah. kind of X-brace or whatever. Um but uh, because until the sheeting goes on, you don't have that. I got you. Okay. You know what I think is crazy though. It's like you go. I think it's Texas. They do cut roofs for these massive roofs. It, I was going to say. And you go upstairs, and there's all these kind of diagonal struts everywhere that are just grabbing this valley. Grabbing. It, it just the, screams trusses, but they're doing it with solids on. Yeah, that, and that, it's that, like, oh, it, just run a strut from the valley there down to that corner of the bearing wall. It's the high hat roofs that you look at and you think, God, they're solid sawn framing those. Yeah, there's a lot of wood up there. And um, do we think? Do you think we hand cut so many roofs because carpenters are worried they're going to lose their jobs to a truss plant? Because <laughs> I feel like there. I've talked to framers in the past that are just like, "No, nah, we'd rather just go ahead and do the roof." So, so it's on. It's on us. And it's like you. Not once have you asked for responsibility, <laughs> and now you're asking for responsibility. Well, I mean, it's one of those things. I think you know the the quality of your truss plant. We up by us. We we had a trust plan. We did a couple of projects, and you know, Shoreline Builders spent a day or two planing the top of the trusses because they were Yikes. that far out. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's you know you can accept some things, but when things start getting you know above a quarter inch and three eighths of an inch high or something, and it's like yeah, you can send them back, but what are you going to do? Send them back and wait three weeks for the you know corrected trusses to come. So it's like, okay, how do I solve that here? That's really interesting here because we always figured one of the reasons to go with trusses was, well, we know exactly how they're going to show up. They're going to show up stacked and they'll be exactly the same. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. funny. Yeah, and our, our rule is if they show up and they're not going up that day, we got to cover them. They got to be covered. They got to be protected. They got to be up off the soil. Like, we Yeah, how many job sites we've been in and you just see them laying in a like mud a, pile. Yeah, like When they're doing drove. concrete work still. Yeah. Or the concrete work's done and they're floor framing. And that they're just sitting in the mud for a week. And they don't weeks. unload them carefully. They're usually a roll-off truck. Mm-hmm. So you cut the strap, tip the bed, <laughs> roll them right into the mud, <laughs> yeah. and leave them there for a good month. And then uh, pull them up and wonder why there's all these black spots all over them. <laughs> okay, so are we saying that uh, design constraints are what is dictating whether or not we're trussing or stick framing? Well, I think it's very similar to the floor frame because the roof frame is doing the same job as the floor frame. What is it all it's about? Doing in a in a sloped fashion, but there's the budget constraints. There's the what am I doing in the attic? Do I want to live in the attic? Do I not want to live in the attic? Is it vented? Is it unvented? Are there mechanicals, there mechanicals going in the attic there, or is it just a mechanical trough that's going up there? So there's a whole bunch of is there volume ceilings in the second floor or in that ceiling? That. So you're agreeing the constraints of the project are going to dictate what our choices are. Yeah, I think so. I mean, me pre- my preference would be to do probably trusses. I mean, from an architect standpoint, it's much easier to lay out a roof with trusses. And well, such. and as a builder, I don't want people jerking around in the attic. There's yeah. no reason for you to be up there. Well, it's one of those upward pressure things of. Oh wow! Look, Can we just capture this space? space? Can I just yeah. like put a rec room up here, or you know, 
five more bedrooms? Sure. Do you want to pay to put a bedroom and a rec room up there? We can, but it's a, there's a cost. Um, and it's so typical in our area for a single story to put uh, a half a story above to plan to finish that off later, or if it's a two-story colonial to plan to put a half of a floor up there. Is that the... Uh, uh Vermonters modesty where they don't want to say, yeah, we need another room. We don't want to spend that money. And then they go, oh, we'll do it. We'll just plan ahead. Yeah. And then we're being thrifty rather than spending the extra money. These we're are the thrifty. same people that in the winter, they divert their dryer load, you know, into the basement so they don't give up those BTUs. So yeah, it's a pattern. Okay. But so if you're going to do the half story, are, can we say that we're going to insulate an air seal along the roof plane and not try to follow the knee wall? And this yeah, thing it across. does. Yeah, because I've, I've crosses, never gotten that tight. That's, a, that's certainly a challenge, and I would probably move to the roof plane. Yeah, um, with a hot roof scenario or outside insulation, or, or something. a vented over roof, or or vented over something. But we're not talking about venting. We're talking about framing. We're talking about the framing of it. Um, you know, one of the things I'm doing a project now where I wanted to look into was, uh, can we do a SIPS roof? Just because of the span, the insulation, um, trying to stay away from spray foam, right? Because it would be really easy to go on this roof and just do a parallel core truss, do four or five inches of closed cell, fill the rest with cellulose, call it a day. Um, what kind of R value were you going to get with a SIPS roof? Um, that's the challenge. Yes, yeah, because you want at, it to be. Even at 12 inches at R4, it's still R50. Not quite. Not the. It's, not even code 10 20 point. 40 60 rules yeah so, yeah but it is an r50 that's fully continuous yeah. yeah so the the continuity factor is a major part of that equation um that you don't get in a cavity cut roof system so so you do have that but then even sips have you know they have their constraints and then you have to deal with the joints and yeah and if if i did a this i've only done two sips roofs ever um, and both of them, we did an overframe vented assembly. Yeah, yeah so. as I said, when we worked with Dave Gothier with Winter Panel way back in when, he was moving towards if you don't vent the panel yeah. roof, we won't. We'll void the warranty on the panel. Yeah, we just did a three quarter inch space. Yep, we still think it works fine, but um, but yeah, we just laid down one vice and then resheet the roof and then put the metal roof on top of that. Yeah, so. Okay, so I think we're ready for Pete's resources. Well, I hate to say it, but we're going to do a repeat resource. A repeat, repeat of Pete's resource. resource. Okay. You didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> um, it, it's the same framing article that we used for the walls. Did we use it for the floor? I don't think we no. did. But, uh, yeah, it's the efficient framing article that we wrote. Do you remember what it's called? I'm pretty sure it's called efficient framing. Okay. Um so if I Google, wood is good if used as it should, should be, be used. <laughs> <laughs> I forget. The Amish were pretty sparse with their language, so it might not be grammatically correct. But okay, okay, used as it should. That was roof framing. Let's uh, let's say thank you uh, for tuning in today. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, we would love for you to leave a comment or uh, like and subscribe. If you're listening, we would love for you to go to iTunes and leave a five-star review. That helps other people organically find the podcast and us be able to grow the podcast, reach more people, and educate more people moving forward. I would like to say thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. 
Always a pleasure. And does it count if I go back and look at the YouTube over and over again? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, do it from different locations with a different IP address, but you can sort that out. (laughs) Just buy a new computer every month. There you go. Have a good day. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.